This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk and Spock wander onto the set of an American Doctor Who pilot. everyone, my name is Gepwin. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review critique show that's putting the humanities back into science fiction. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. And I have been sick, so my voice is going to come and go. Yes, Gep- Gepwin's alive. Don't worry. Uh, I've not replaced him with a robot duplicate yet. Not yet. You're still working on it. This is the final episode of Season 2 of Star Trek, the original series. Yes, that means we've made it through the, the season where it, it's basically just repeat, repeating being a different Earth culture or copy of there for, uh, where are we going today? <laughs> We're going to Earth. <laughs> this is a very weird one. So, end of season two, everyone was pretty sure that Star Trek was going to get canceled. Oh no. This is when they had the pretty famous letter writing campaign to get season three going which was led by a bunch of uh, fan groups possibly spearheaded by roddenberry himself uh that got star trek a season three but when they were planning the finale they had no idea whether they were getting renewed or not yeah so it's you know maybe maybe good to have some plans for uh some, some of the people involved in the uh, the crew and the writing process especially gene roddenberry because he's the one making these decisions to maybe have some some options for after the show So this episode, which is called Assignment Earth, with a colon, was written by Art Wallace and Gene Roddenberry originally as a pilot episode for a completely unrelated television show. Yes. A television show that, um, how many seasons did it get, Gepwin? (laughs) Well, it didn't even technically get a pilot because (laughs) no one wanted to finance filming a pilot. So Roddenberry decided to rewrite the script they'd done as the potential pilot as an episode of star trek and then use that as what's called a backdoor pilot yes <laughs> so sort of like yes it's, it's a spinoff and yeah <laughs> yeah so the idea is you're going to work your star trek characters into this pilot so that you can air it as an episode of your already greenlit tv show then go look how great these characters were wouldn't you like to see more of them by the way, I have this show ready here. I guess it's like if the entire point of having Sarah Jane on uh, Doctor Who was in order to film the Sarah Jane adventures. That would be silly. Later. <laughs> <laughs> or I guess also K9 Company. But, you know. <laughs> That'd be just silly if they kept introducing characters in one season of Doctor Who just so they could have more spinoff series that got increasingly ridiculous. <laughs> A little bit. Anyway, back to Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> that only as sort of tangentially, because this is a very Doctor Who-ish inspired show, as you kind of said. Yes. Uh, in fact, this kind of reminded me of like the Pertwee era of Doctor Who, which was actually took, I believe, t- uh, it was uh, uh, done after this. So you know, you get some your alien character who's put on Earth, and they're kind of doing stuff there, going on adventures, but it's also a very very, very, very terrestrial, not traveling through space to weird planets and things yeah. like that. Okay, so as we said, written by Art Wallace, who we've seen before because he wrote Obsession. It's my obsession. Oh, okay. 
I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> we did that joke. <laughs> to death. Also well known for working on the original Dark Shadows TV show. He also uh, you know, uh, worked on uh, Planet of the Apes, the TV series. We've only got two guest stars. Well, yeah, we got we got William Shatner as Captain Kirk and <laughs> Leonard Nimoy as Mr. Spock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this episode stars Robert Lansing as Gary Seven. I prefer Blake Seven myself, but he's pretty good. He appeared in about 200 episodes of television and stage and radio appearances over his career through the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was in this episode of Star Trek. He was in Twilight Zone. He was in Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Murder, She Wrote, as well as just, he was everywhere. Outlaws and like 12 O'Clock High and Law and Order and something called Insight. Bonanza. Also, this is the TV debut of comedian Terry Garr playing Roberta Lincoln. This mm-hmm. was her first TV role, but she appeared later as a minor in the Monkees movie and yeah. then got a lot of other TV and movie roles up into 2011 when she retired. She was also in uh, Batman Beyond uh, and uh, in the... Also in the most important science fiction movie of all time, Young Frankenstein. (laughs) (laughs) Told the list, people. (laughs) Okay, this is going to be probably a short and confusing synopsis because this episode is not well written or structured. Nope. It's like, it's like they took one episode and then kind of inserted Star Trek characters into it. (laughs) Yeah, but the episode that they had originally involved a great deal of waiting around doing nothing. Hmm, we have to ponder this particular thing and think about it and ask questions and then not do anything about it for a while. So, we join the Enterprise. It's back in time. Yes. On purpose, I think. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, we're just going back in time now. It's no big deal. They just went back in time to 1968, coincidentally the year this was filmed, so they didn't have to do much with the sets, I guess. Yes. Oh, we can do location shots this week. Hooray! (laughs) They are here to find out how Earth survived a precarious time in their history known as the Cold War. Well, uh, I'm guessing then at some point in our future, every record of this time period is destroyed or something? Also, they keep talking about how this time period is marked by America and a unnamed other superpower. (laughs) Could it be, I don't know, um, Brazil maybe? Yeah, it's yeah, got to be Brazil, right? It's got to be. <laughs> Those dang Brazilians and their their nuclear weapons platforms. And um, Wait, yeah. that's, that's the plot of one of the Call of Duties. Is it? Yeah, one of the more recent Call of Duties, like the future, future set ones. I never played it, but it's like South America becomes the nuclear power and tries to take over. We're tired of everybody's crap. We're going to do this thing. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the Enterprise is here to record their own history when the ship is suddenly rocked by a powerful transporter beam of unknown origin and a man holding a black cat dressed in a suit materializes in the transporter pad. Well, this is a little weird. Um... Are we, are we getting uh, you know, interference from some alien race who's like, you shouldn't be time traveling here. We're going to send this representative here to, to interfere with the Enterprise and cause mischief and all that. So this is Gary Seven, and he is just as confused as we are. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
he doesn't know why he's on a spaceship all of a sudden. And conferring with his cat, who he talks through throughout the entire thing, very one-sided conversations. Well, the cat meows occasionally. The cat is also named Isis, to be even more unoriginal. Yep. (laughs) He deduces that the Enterprise must be from Earth's future, and it shouldn't be here, and it's interfering with him accidentally, and they need to send him down to the planet to complete his mission because he is human and here to save Earth from itself, but he's actually from an alien planet where he's been living that's super secret and technologically advanced and hasn't been discovered even in the Enterprise's original time. You get all that, people? No. <laughs> Uh, I don't remember if it was here or later, but uh, they are these aliens are referred to as the Aegis, right? I think so. So, so he's an agent of the Aegis, right? Yeah. Since you know another term for for Aegis is Shield, he's an agent of Shield. No. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk doesn't trust this random dude who just showed up and orders him detained, but Gary resists taking out everyone, including Spock, before he's finally stunned. Yeah, I guess he's also some sort of Ubermensch or something. I don't know. How could he meet Spock, man? I don't know. They have McCoy (laughs) examine him to discover whether or not he's actually human. He is, but he's too human. Haven't we had that plot point before? Yeah, he must be from that planet with the spores or something. Oh, yeah, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the unknown from beyond the galaxy tentacle oh, people. Oh, yeah, them too. Yeah. Well, Kirk and the crew are deciding what on earth to do with this dude, uh, he just leaves. Yep. He decides, well, what on earth? Well, maybe I, I, I don't mind if I do. Yeah, the whole plot at this point, which I'm st- I'm confused reading this stupid thing because it's not... Uh, basically, they're like, so either he's telling the truth and we should let him interfere with history because that's actually technically part of our past that we've accidentally interrupted, mm-hmm. or he's not telling the truth and we have to prevent him from messing with history because that would change the future. Yes. So, what do you do in that situation? <laughs> yeah, you accidentally let your prisoner escape. <laughs> I guess that way, if anything terrible happens, you're not uh, morally responsible, I guess. (laughs) So Gary transports down, where he appears in a large wall safe in a lavish apartment office. As you do. You do that too, right? Apparently this wall safe thing is his own version of a transporter, because it creates like an interdimensionally doorway looking thing. Just kind of like, well, it's I'm going to be here now, and um, I guess I can control it remotely, and uh, it's also a blink fall, apparently. So Here we are introduced to his computer, which emerges from the wall behind some decorative shelving or some such. He has funny arguments with the computer, and I'm sure they would have many, like, ha-ha, they act like a bickering married couple things if this was picked up as an actual show. Indeed. Which, that wouldn't get old, would it? No. Wait, wait a moment. Captain, there's something familiar with this computer. Mm. That monitor. It's the M5. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it does use the same oscilloscope looking monitor thing. So he is here to meet up with a couple of agents who should be here, but aren't. I guess they're uh, doing field work. He's going to take over their mission to sabotage an orbital weapons platform that the U.S. is launching in response to one that was launched earlier by this other unnamed superpower. Okay, so I already said it was the Brazilians, but now since it's an unnamed superpower, I'm going to keep changing countries. So it's now 
Singapore, that's the unknown superpower. Meanwhile, Kirk and Spock beam down to track Gary 7 as Scotty leads them to his office via scanner or some such. It's just an excuse to put Spock in another dumb hat. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's time for the scene where we waste some time wandering around the streets and Spock looks out of place. Yeah. Okay. Got that uh, check off? Okay, going, for, <laughs> going forward. So Gary uses his computer to forge some government IDs. As you do. And a young blonde woman dressed in a very, very late 60s way enters the other room. It's Inga. This is Roberta. She's in like very colorful short skirt, basically, is her whole thing. I wonder who put her in that. Gary, assuming that she is one of the agents he's been looking for, demands that she report to him, revealing all sorts of technology that she probably shouldn't know about, including the talking computer and a typewriter that takes dictation. Whoops. I guess uh, the secret's out. Um, Might want to make sure that she's, you know, on your side, Gary. Yes, after realizing his mistake, Gary convinces Roberta that he's actually a CIA agent with cool spy stuff and she needs to help him because she cares about her country. Yeah, appeal to nationalism. I mean, it was the time. Well, the whole plot's about Cold War stuff, so I guess it kind of fancy. Well, Gary is planning and we find out that the agents he was trying to find died off screen in a car crash. Whoops. There's no reason for there to be like people he's replacing. He could have just beamed down and had his assignment. So, and yeah, I guess maybe they're trying to like have a justification why there's a secretary who already works here, but it could just be that she was hired by a you know over the phone sort of situation, and it's like yeah, yeah come in here and uh, you know and uh, get to work. Kirk and Spock come barging into the office. They're stopped by Roberta, who manages to call the police because she is, like, the most competent female character we've yet had on this show. Hooray! Now, uh, hopefully the police will take care of these uh, weird alien and future people, and uh, everything will be set right in the world. Gary escapes by using his safe transporter to transport himself and his cat to the rocket launch pad, bypassing, like, all security and sense of challenge that there may have been. This also helps him avoid, you know, having more sets, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, he emerges from a door on the government base, which, like, can he just transport to any random door, or did they set this thing up ahead of time? I have no idea. The police arrive just as Kirk and Spock push their way into the main office to find Gary gone. They transport themselves and the police officers up to the ship and then beam the cops back down while they're being confused at the sudden change of scenery. This is all in full view of Roberta, who takes it all pretty well. Oh, people just teleporting around now. I guess this is going to be my life now. (laughs) At the base, Gary uses a magic space pen that he has to mesmerize a guard. Then he hides himself in the trunk of the launch director's car and gets a free ride to the rocket. Because the launch director will for sure be going to the rocket personally that day. Yeah, doing an inspection, apparently. Right before launch. Back on the Enterprise, Scotty has interfaced with a weather satellite that gives him a video feed of the launch area that he is using to visually scan for Gary at the launch site. And it's basically just stock footage. Yeah, that he cycles through yeah. <laughs> endlessly. It's like, it's like, okay, 30 seconds of this. Okay, we keep going. Okay, why... Why are we watching this? Yeah, not only do they do it now, but they cut back to it seven or eight times throughout the course of the next six scenes. So you gotta build the tension of Scotty not finding anyone. Kirk and Spock beam down, are immediately seen and captured by the guard that Gary had previously mesmered, and 
then they hang out in the launch control room for the rest of the episode. Because that's where you're going to put prisoners you picked up, you know, violating security here, clearly. (laughs) While they're captured, Gary climbs the rocket and starts to mess around with computer-looking doohickeys inside the nose cone. As you do, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because he could just sort of do that now. All apparently while being yelled at and criticized by his cat. Good kitty. At least someone's being responsible here on this launch pad. This goes on for an insufferably long time. Mm -hmm. Until Scotty finally finds Gary with his satellite thing and beams him aboard. But meanwhile, Roberta has been hanging out in the office, accidentally hits a pen that was the very bad way to hide his transporter safe doodah, accidentally messes with the transporter safe doodah and turns it on, and accidentally interferes with the Enterprise trying to beam Gary on board, beaming him instead back to his office. What a coincidence. It's almost like this wasn't hack writing at all. Yeah. Deus Ex Blonde. Mm-hmm. Gary starts the computer, was apparently able to finish just enough of his rewiring of the rocket that he can take manual control, but not automated computer control, which is important later. Yes. I don't know what the difference would be <laughs> because you're controlling it from the computer. <laughs> You know, it's just like, okay, I have to have my hands on the controls. I can't just tell the computer to do the thing. Okay, this is totally different for some reason. Verda is now suspicious of Gary and his impossible technology and the fact that he's hijacking a nuke. Smart girl, yeah. But for now, she just stands around thinking about it. Maybe call the cops back? I know they're probably weirded out, confused, but, you know. Why did they leave? I don't know. <laughs> It's like, we just disappeared, appeared somewhere weird, and then reappeared back in this office. Time to not think about this anymore. I guess that's the only explanation you could ha- really have here. It's like, yeah, yeah, there was, yeah, there was all a false alarm. Don't worry about it. <clears throat> Let's not go back there ever again. The rocket launches, then suddenly veers off its pre-programmed course, which distracts everyone in the control room because things are going wrong. So Kirk and Spock grab their stuff and beam back to the ship. I guess they're out there now, so, okay. (laughs) Gary sets the rocket to arm itself and head towards Central Europe. This apparently is the final straw for Roberta, who grabs a cigar box that was just there, is made of steel, looks like, and uh, wangs him in the head with it and steals his magic space pen. That sounds good work, Uh, but... um... Yeah, I, I know you're 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 making very smart decisions, giving the, ep- the information you're, you're having here. The writers clearly didn't want you to be in the right here, so meh. Yeah, it's odd. I don't know. The scene's <laughs> not well done. <laughs> he plays with her for a while to let him finish what he started. As the computer counts down the miles until they nuke Europe. Whoops. And this was after World War II. It's not like there was much left in Europe at this point. Know, it depends on what part of Europe. Kirk and Spock beam to the office where they try to take control of the rocket, but now Roberta's decided that she's on Gary's side and holds them at bay with the magic space pen. So, uh, possibly fake CIA agent who's trying to nuke our friends in Europe um, versus spacemen who teleport people around. Yeah, I I don't know why she's (laughs) siding with Gary. Like, I get she wouldn't trust them either. But wouldn't you just not trust any of them? It's like, okay, I need some explanations right now, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna freak out here, guys. Come on. Gary grabs the pen away from her, goes, "Oh no, it was set to kill." That's a 
thing this pen can do, apparently. Yeah. Um, that's why the doctor carries a sonic screwdriver, not a laser. This is also on, the guy. first time that we've heard that this pen can be used as a weapon instead of just some sort of thing that puts people to sleep and opens doors. So I guess it's the magic wand, so... Yeah. Wait, he's a wizard. That explains everything. <laughs> he tells them all that he needs to do something about this rocket, and Spock says that he doesn't have time to override it, so they all decide to just let him do whatever because it's going to blow up anyway. You know, there, there's a spaceship in orbit above the, here you guys could, like, talk to and maybe arrange to do something with. Maybe, but that would be hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Gary takes control of the weapons platform, makes it explode a few hundred miles above Europe, like last-minute detonation, I guess. Mm -hmm. High enough that people can see it, but they're not going to die in the process. Yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not good to disperse a bunch of radiation a hundred miles above Europe, probably. Yeah, best to be inside for uh, to avoid uh, you know the the, the initial uh, burst there and things like that. But also, yeah. I know that they didn't have as much electronic stuff around as we do now. But wouldn't this have like taken out their entire power grid? Yeah, maybe not everything, but it, w it would cause some uh, disruptions uh, depending on proximity to key bits of infrastructure. Later, they're all hanging out in the other room. Gary is dictating his report to the typewriter apparently his mission was to make it look like they were going to accidentally nuke europe and everyone would go oh no these weapons that we're launching into space might be dangerous and yep. maybe not do that anymore funny thing about that but i'll give that after we're done here <laughs> while everybody sits around talking roberta keeps staring at the cat isis for some reason because she doesn't trust it and then while everyone's distracted, it briefly turns into a scantily clad woman wearing kind of the same kind of design that the cat's collar was, only this time it's like barely covering her breasts instead of being a collar. It's a changeling. The founders are here already. Oh no. <laughs> the Earth is doomed. But Roberta's the only one who sees this. And when she tries to point it out, Isis is back to being a cat. And everyone looks at her like, she's crazy. Ha. 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 Kirk and Spock leave, commenting that they have a feeling Gary and Roberta are going to have many more adventures. Nope. Man. Man. This... This was terrible. <laughs> yeah. Roberta is actually kind of a fun character, and I wouldn't yeah. have minded seeing her do a Doctor Who-style spinoff show. Mm -hmm. Gary is acted with such a weird, flat, boring affect that you never want to see him again this is this is general adventure guy in a t 60s tv show stone face guy yeah he's yeah. like so <laughs> competent man it hurts he just shows up a guard comes out it's like oh yes hello guard i hit you with my pen you are knocked out now i continue yeah he's basically a mary sue <laughs> Come, cat, who I argue with as if you are a person. In fact, a lot of this kind of reminds me of fanfic. Like, someone, like, I want a, a Star Trek insert fanfic where I meet the, the crew of the Enterprise, then I go on an adventure, and they're involved somehow, but it also has to have these other elements, and I really like my cat, so we got my cat involved, too. Yeah, it does read like that. Yeah. Also, <laughs> this is the third time in this series that there's been a cat that turns into a sexy lady. Yep. <laughs> and then when we get to 
the animated series, there's like a sexy cat lady. I think Roddenberry had some sort of fetish here. For, for you know, uh, cat ladies that go meow? Yeah, there was, there's something going on here. I don't want to kink shame anyone, but there's something going on here. And, uh, I'm trying to remember the, the name of the, uh, the, the animated series character's name. Hmm. I don't know. I'm going to think of her as Katra because I watched too much She-Ra. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I still need to get to watching that. <laughs> it's very good. I like this episode. <laughs> yeah. So the, the main thing for me is that I've seen this setup before because when I was a kid, my mom got me watching the old Avengers TV show, which is a British spy comedy. Oh, yeah. I've not seen any of that, but yeah. I... It's basically this setup, but way better. So the whole time I was watching Gary run around with his stupid cat, I'm just like, you know what? John Steed would have done this so much better. Probably with less convoluted plot lines and uh, just deus ex machinas. <laughs> also, the original Avengers uh, for a while guest starred Deanna Rigg, so you can't really get better than that. Maybe I'll have to check that out at some point. Maybe um, is that yeah. on Amazon? <laughs> I don't know. Only watch the Deanna Rigg episodes. They're most of the good ones. Okay. <laughs> she was on for like two seasons. Of course, now I'm also thinking about The Prisoner. I need to go back to pitching watching that. Better go back to Star Trek. <laughs> the weird uh-huh. thing is, so it's just, just the the way that they shoehorned the Star Trek stuff into here. It's so weird. They, they may as well have just done the thing that they did with the cage and have them watching it on TV and go like, here is the story of when Earth was saved by a magic alien. Yes. <laughs> And if they you know wanted to have it be like relevant to the current uh, goings on, it's like yeah. And then we we f- we found you know he was like preserved in some sort of stasis chamber or something like that. And uh, he wants to you know help getting back to where he was uh, you know you know uh, put in prison or whatever, so he can finish saving the day or something like that. Gee, we would just write a better pilot for this series, except you Captain America him. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> anyway i don't there's nothing here like we could talk about orbital weapons platforms which i know you had something on but other than that yeah. there's there's absolutely nothing in this episode i i think the first thing as far as the orbital weapons uh, platform stuff i wanted to talk about is that in the episode they were saying that there's going that this uh, rocket launch is going to be suborbital wait what <laughs> yep <laughs> so that's the first thing that kind of like got me thinking about this like so you're launching a platform that can fire nukes at anywhere on the Earth, whatever you feel like, but you're not putting it in actual orbit. You're making it suborbital. Isn't a suborbital weapons platform just an airplane? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a very you know, it's an airplane. It's um, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, I guess a normal missile would be also count for that. I don't know a, a paper airplane with a you know a water balloon attached to it. That's also suborbital. <laughs> Basically, it's designed to come back down to Earth before it makes a full round about the planet. Yeah, which doesn't take very long. Yeah. <laughs> to, to just send a rocket up and come back down. Yeah, you know, we're, we're talking minutes, and uh, I guess that fits well within the timeline of the show here. But that was supposed to be not by design, but it was also by design. And I was like, okay, I need to complain about this for a little while. <laughs> Yeah, what? But yeah, it it, it, it 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 also you know got me thinking. He's like, wait a moment. So there is 
So they're, they're basically depicting a, you know, assuming it was an actual orbital platform, not a suborbital one, aka when you, you put up and now you have, uh, you, know, you know, nuclear missiles that are, uh, you know, positioned above the Earth in orbit that are able to fire very quickly down to any target you like. The, then, you know, so that, you know, that's basically nukes in space. So I remembered that there is this thing called the out, uh, the the, um, was it, the outer space treaty, and guess when that was uh, uh, ratified by the United States? That was in the fifties, wasn't it? Oh uh, no, it was actually in the sixties. Okay, the year before this episode was made. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, you know, the, if if you think view Star Trek as being a divergent timeline from us. Clearly, the diver- point of divergence is be- before 1968. Yep, because <laughs> no outer space treaty. So, 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 what is the outer space treaty? The outer space treaty uh, is uh, short version is it's all about the you know, peaceful exploitation of space for you know and uh, and things like that. But it also explicitly says no nukes in space. Uh, so no nuclear weapons uh, platforms like the one in, the, in this episode uh, or anything sort of similar. And uh, and so. A lot of the uh, you know nations of the Earth, including you know the United States, the USSR, China, you know basically all the major powers, and all much other folks, including Brazil and Singapore, I think Brazilians and their orbital <laughs> weapons platforms, uh, but also Mali, the the actual unnamed uh, foreign power there that they were facing off in a cold war in this episode. <laughs> Um, all, all of them uh, signed up on this uh, for the Outer Space Treaty to basically say, yeah. Let's try to keep our whole like killing each other thing with giant weapons of mass destruction a little more terrestrial bound here. Yeah, so <laughs> so yeah, there, there's that going on there. Uh, but uh, there is, I guess you know, in some ways, uh, it's maybe an excuse to talk about a different movie. Yeah, remember Space Cowboys? Oh yeah, I never. Yeah, did I see that? <laughs> so uh, you get a few uh, older actors there, and you uh, it's like you know put together this plot where. It's like yes, you guys did this thing, and uh, you guys are kind of expert at these particular bits of, uh, of the technology that just happened to have been stolen and secretly put into orbit on a wearable weapons platform by the USSR in violation of the Outer Space Treaty. That was a bad movie. <laughs> I remember this movie. Yeah, it had some interesting ideas, but yeah, it's it's, it's pretty damn kooky. <laughs> yeah, I only watched it because I like Tommy Lee Jones. Oh yeah, I found he's one of the one of the guys there. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I read this thing ages ago, and it was, it's just like a memoir of growing up in like the 50s and 60s by Bill Bryson, who is not a science writer. But he basically posited that we did this outer space treaty and agreed to not put nukes in orbit and things, mostly because it was never a particularly viable thing to do in the first place. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, let's think about it in the sort of the technical sort of side of things. So you want to have your nukes over your your main enemy, right? And you want that to be pretty much a constant. So that means you either need to launch multiple platforms like this. So you you know the, as they go around the Earth, there's always going to be at least one of them in position to strike. Or alternatively, you set you send it out to geostationary orbit, which is way out there. So you can keep your platform your single platform over whatever country you like. Say, um, I don't know, uh, what's another signatory of the, you know, Outer Space Treaty? Um, we're going to go with Poland today. <laughs> <laughs> you keep it over Poland uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, a geostationary orbit. And when, when it's time for the, for the Third World War to strike, you send off your missiles and 
They're still going towards Earth while everyone has already fired off all their terrestrial-based missiles. They've already landed. Also, yep. <laughs> you can't put it over the other country because things in space don't fall. So you mm-hmm. have to deorbit it, which is a very complicated calculation they weren't capable of doing particularly accurately at the time. Like, you could probably drop something from orbit on someone in the vicinity of what you were aiming at not even necessarily guaranteed to be the country that you were aiming at. And especially when you're, you're talking about, uh, uh, you know, trying to drop a, a bomb specifically on Nicaragua, then that's going to be a little tricksy because it's a large country, but it's not that large. Also, I guess I should just mention it because there was kind of a big vogue for talking about this a couple of years ago when everyone was playing with Kerbal Space Program. Putting nukes in orbit is not really worth it because when you're dropping something on people from that altitude just dropping a big steel beam is going to have more or less the same destructive capability without all of the associated nukiness um how is that um that's like half the plots for uh uh, the the gundam series it's like Mm -hmm. yes we're you know we're we're having a a face-off between earth and the space colonies space colonies are like uh, screw you guys, we're going to drop a giant space station on you. This was called the Rods from the Gods, which would basically just be putting a orbital platform up that has a bunch of depleted uranium or similarly dense beams that are very, very skinny and aerodynamic so they can get through the atmosphere really, really fast. And then mm-hmm. you just deorbit one of those on top of whoever you're trying to kill. Yep. Yeah, let's say surgical strike. And it would be like a meteor strike. Operation Stardust or something. So yeah, Gosh, we, drivers of a sort. <laughs> as with a lot of things during the Cold War, everyone adhered to the treaty because it was impractical to do it otherwise. Yep. If if there was if it was ever practical to put orbital weapons platforms in orbit, they would have been there because it was the kind of thing we did at the time. And, uh, to to extent, you know, you it might be argued that. If there were, say, some sort of other military asset of an, you know, a massive importance in orbit, then you might have you know some nukes up there to strike at that you know, space station or you know, you know death laser or something like that. But there really wasn't ever something like that. You know, there's spy satellites, but if you're already firing off your missiles, it's kind of late for that to actually matter very much. The other interesting thing with the nuking people from space idea, which is also something else I found when. I was researching this. I found like an old propaganda film by like the the Nuclear Energy Commission talking about how putting fission generators on satellites would keep them powered forever, like a nuclear submarine it would give them quite a long uh, you know life there as far as power uh, you know you know usage goes. But you still need fuel. One of their points was you could harmlessly disperse it into the atmosphere. When it deorbited, um, I guess if it's a small enough quantity, it's less damage to everyone than, say, you know, a bunch of coal power plants. But still, <laughs> this is something I remember when I was really young. I was hearing about things like this from this time period, and was like, "Well, why don't we put nuclear power generation on things that we send into space? Because you know they don't need a lot of." oxygen to run they produce electricity fairly efficiently it would make sense for this kind of thing and it was because we're not very good at putting things in space and when it explodes it's going to take out most of florida and florida probably doesn't want that to happen 
since launching nukes into full-on space wasn't going to work super well. And we never did come up with a good way to ICBMs for being an incredibly viable way for launching nukes around. I don't know why they chose that for the big thing everyone was afraid of in the 60s. I guess it was just sensationalism. Uh, The other weird thing that I found with this episode was the idea that showing how trying to kill each other with nukes could be dangerous would make everyone stop it. The funny thing about people is that (laughs) we can see evidence for why something is really, really bad idea and opt to ignore it for various reasons. Uh, sometimes we feel we have reasons that are you know, justify our in, intentionally ignoring these things. Other times we're just sort of bad at sort of internalizing it. And perhaps, you know, some things are much more difficult to sort of dismiss, say a suborbital <laughs> nuclear weapon platform exploding over uh, you know, Eurasia there. But uh, still, there is going to be, you know, when you, in situations like that where you don't got people that are willing to see this as a bad sign. Well, you had a particular bad confluence with this because everyone wants to just talk about how much people ignore danger that's right in front of their faces, like yeah. we keep talking about now with uh, climate disasters. Mm-hmm. But most people don't. You just get systems in place that make that the easiest thing to do for the people that actually could change something. Indeed. Because at the time, I mean, most people didn't know what in the world nuclear energy was in the 50s and 60s. It was the brand new wave of the future thing. Future technology. They radically downplayed the dangers of of nuclear fallout and things like people in schools were being told that hiding under your desk would protect you from a nuclear missile yeah you know never mind the whole blast wave and radiation and uh you know fallout and you know all the other things at the firestorm and um, anyway also everyone kind of forgets the whole mutually assured destruction idea means it doesn't matter how dangerous you think it is because it's basically a yeah but i killed you too yeah that's the entire (laughs) idea is yeah we're all gonna die because we know this is a thing that's just could happen at any minute and we can't prevent but we've made it so if we die you also die so, like, the whole thing being a dangerous bad idea was sort of the entire point. And uh, without it being a dangerous bad idea, then the whole mutually desired destruction kind of doesn't work anymore. Because then someone will just press the button. You know, yeah. Without, you know, it's like, oh, if we're not all going to die, if this is not a terrible idea, let's go into it. And people wanted to use these things. Like, we think of this as, like, an incredibly dangerous, horrible thing now. Uh, partly because of all of the kind of anti-nuke climate protests that happened in the mm-hmm. like 60s and 70s for nuclear power. But at the time, like people would line up in Vegas to watch this stuff and like stand in fallout and you know hang around and get Geiger countered to figure out how radioactive they were. <laughs> Atomic tourism. <laughs> yeah, it's just it was such a markedly different attitude and information that people had about these things at the time it's really really difficult as like as like me someone who was born in the late 80s to wrap my head around the idea that people didn't always think of nukes as this like massive existential danger to the world in general then i guess people realize at some point oh radiation like dangerous radiation here like this can um 
Cause cancer, that means I die. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this was still like the era when they were pumping lead into the atmosphere for fun. <laughs> Pump lead into the atmosphere for fun and profit today. We kind of forget how environmentalist we got after the 70s. It's like taken a severe backtrack recently, but we're still a lot more environmentally conscious than we were in even the 60s. Indeed. Even with all of the like backtracking and deregulating and things that are happening now, like you you didn't know you weren't even told what the kinds of like radiation and lead and poisonous whatever the hex they were pumping into the atmosphere it was the carefree 60s we can do whatever and economic boom time and industry and wave of the future all of our problems will be solved with atoms some sort of atomy way and all the uh, streamlined and, and, and spandex jackets and things like that for everyone. Now, I just, did they make spandex jackets? Because I want to see, that. would that even work? <laughs> I don't know. Or would the whole jacket, just like you'd unzip the jacket and it would just go like, thump and like bunch up under your arms immediately. Uh, I think I'm taking it uh, from a line, uh, that, uh, from actually from a line from a song. <laughs> but anyway, I'm, I'm getting uh, too divergent here. <laughs> what, do, what else do we have to talk about? We've got like three minutes to fill before we go to the to the thing. If we don't want this to be a fifty minute episode, <laughs> um, I guess I could talk a little bit about uh, nuclear, nuclear missiles. Sure. So um, the, the 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 whole Cold War arms race was very much sort of an arms race. In the we're racing to get, uh, you know, early on as you know, we're racing to get the technology capable to end the other side. Uh, you know, as efficiently and uh, you know quickly as possible in a reliable fashion. Uh, so uh, you know, when when you know when the Earth, when the United States was facing off against its Cold War ally Qatar, uh, <laughs> to sort of think, okay, so if we start detecting that we're getting launches here, we're going to have only so much time to uh, detect them, make a decision, and then start launching our own missiles. And if we don't get our missiles out of their silos in time before. They're, the the enemy missiles get to our you know, to our our silos and destroy them, then we're basically defenseless and we might as well just surrender. And so there is a very much a race to get missiles capable of being launched as fast as possible. Which, given that the early missiles uh, that uh, ICBMs and related uh, were uh, liquid fuel and needed a whole bunch of time to get that sorted out, that was kind of a problem for the U.S. And so they're like, okay. We got these like Atlas and like Titan missiles here, and yeah, they're kind of a little tricksy to go uh, get get up and active here. That means we're probably all going to die, and we're not going to fire off a single one of these. And there's also some issues with navigation stuff. I don't get too much in the weeds there. Uh, and so they you know figured, okay, so maybe there's another way. Maybe we don't use liquids. Maybe we don't use hydrogen. As our as one of our main fuel sources, or kerosene, or whatever it was uh, for for most of these, I think it was kerosene, um, oxygen mix there. Um, sorry, people who are really into the stuff, and I'm messing it up. I apologies. Uh, right the show. <laughs> you never claim to be a chemist. I'm, I'm not a chemist here. <laughs> I'm a physicist, not a chemist. They were the next building over. <laughs> I'm here to calculate the the trajectory of the missile, not not the, the what you put in the fuel. Um, but uh, they uh, eventually uh, switched over to solid fuel boosters instead, and so that's where you got started getting like the the mainline uh, Minuteman uh, missile uh, stuff, which is sort of the, the main backbone of the current U.S. arsenal. And uh, you know, sort of a you know, a personal anecdote here. I, I have been in the presence of one of these, not. 
armed or fueled up at all, but you know, this is the thing that we put in the museum sort of thing. Um, and, uh, cause I, you know, I've been to the, the air force museum, uh, and it's sort of like, yeah, it's like size wise, it's like a couple buses and end kind of stacked up like that. And it's like, yeah, one of these going off could just, you know, you know, kick off basically the end of the world. That's kind of messed up. <laughs> when I used to live out west, I was really close to one of the last uh, intact uh, silos that they've turned into a museum down between mm-hmm. uh, Phoenix and Tucson in Arizona, which is also where they filmed uh, Star Trek First Contact. That, that, that particular missile a silo. Yeah, which they have a missile in. You can see it. <laughs> it's, you know, defueled and has all the stuff taken out of it. But yeah, you can go stand next to this thing underground in this militarized bunker the uh the, the shell had uh hopefully not much else <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and, uh, so so you know you, you you mentioned decommission there uh a lot of the there has been a, a good number of uh you know, missiles that have been decommissioned uh due to uh, various trees and things like that because at some point during the cold war everyone kind of realized oh we got like an excess here and our technology because of all that arms race there is to the point where our missiles are actually fairly reliable. So we don't necessarily need all of them to basically kill everyone a couple times over. So maybe we should reduce the numbers a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah. Now we only have enough to destroy the earth six or seven times instead of 20. Yes. Don't be thinking that, you know, the threat of nuclear annihilation has gone away. It's still there. Not something people really talk about or think about very often. Well, we don't necessarily have it all on like unreliable dead man switches anymore. Hopefully not. (laughs) On that downer note. <laughs> well, anyway, the basic premise of the episode that, like, if you show humanity how stupid nuclear weapons are, I don't know, it really points to kind of a sheeple sort of mentality. If you guys only understood, man. Which I feel like Roddenberry had a lot of in these early episodes. It's like, how can people be so dumb as to do these dumb things, dumb people? It's it's, it's very much a disconnect from trying to understand the people in order to sort of work out some of that and just sort of declaring it to be true. Now, let's go wake up the masses. And I don't know. We've we've gotten a lot more systematic basis in our thinking since the modernist 60s and 70s. Like you had that. You still haven't even gotten to like a lot of the um, the good old hippie stuff yet at this time. So still like partway through that. Yeah, it was kind of getting started at this point. And as far as Star Trek is concerned doesn't really kind of come into it until a bit later i did think that was interesting there was a line in here where uh roberta talks about how young people care a lot about the country they just all think they're gonna die before they're 30 so they're just out partying instead fair enough yeah i i think i can as a a millennial myself i i can uh, sympathize with that mentality the more things change the more boomers ruined everything damn it (laughs) i did like her as a like as a character generally and the actor who plays her is very good and entertaining because i found an interview with her where she talked about this being her first television appearance she says i played a woman who saves the world in a very short skirt and had the series been picked up i would have continued helping to save the world in very short skirts Roddenberry, let her let her wear something as she wants to wear. If she wants a short skirt, fine. If she doesn't, mm. I mean, she calls in the police like twice, and 
waylays Kirk and she ends up being the most competent character in this entire series. Scotty, you've been supplanted. <laughs> yeah, basically. There was a reason that no one wanted this show and it kind of stinks that it got taken as like the last episode of this season. Why do they keep in having the season finales of this show being so lackluster and meh? I guess they ran out of ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like they ran out of ideas for next season, too, even where we start with season three. Oh, God. Spock's brain. Mm. We've got some stuff to get through before that, so I think since sure. we've been <laughs> distracted and talking very slowly and trying to draw this out as long as possible, it's probably time for the galaxy's favorite game show! Ooh, yay! Hey everybody, welcome to the last game show portion of the second season of Star Trek The Original Series. I hope you guys have uh, been keeping track of who's been scoring all the points, because we got some final winners here. Yeah, but how are you feeling? Uh, I'm looking forward to having a break from this for a minute. <laughs> Me too, actually. <laughs> uh, so, our uh, first award, uh, because, uh, you know, because it's, it's just too obvious... It's the Time Warp uh, uh, you know, prize, which goes to the entire Enterprise and the crew for their casual time travel, because mastering time and space is just no big deal anymore. What do they win, Jepwin? Enterprise wins just this. They have a time ship. They win a time ship to have time travel adventures and maybe a TARDIS. Like, it probably would have been better than them continuously forgetting that they can time travel whenever they want, but then sometimes remembering... When they need whales or something. The plot convince, uh, convenience time travel uh, uh, mastery, I guess. <laughs> uh, our second prize is the Executive Spaceman uh, Prize Award, which goes to Gary Seven for coming to Earth, ready for that business meeting. What does he win? Gary Seven gets just a lifetime supply of dry cleaning for his fancy space suits. That is one way to describe them. <laughs> our third one is the This Is My Persona Prize, which goes to Ice is the Cat for being both a cat and a lady at the same time. What does she win? Isis wins a giant person-sized ball of yarn. She can play with that in both forms and maybe tie up Roddenberry later. Hmm, excellent. I, I like this plan. Our fourth prize is the Are We the Guest Stars Award, which goes to Spock and Kirk for basically being guest stars in their own show. What do they win? Spock and Kirk win Supporting Actor Awards because that'd just tick them off. They had constant <laughs> fights about who was the star of this series. <laughs> this time, neither. <laughs> it's Spock. Spock was the star of the series. Correct. <laughs> and I'm going to surprise you, Gepwin, here. I'm going to put one more award in just because uh, to Roberta Lincoln for being the you know most competent person in this damn show award. What does she win? Roberta Lincoln wins a pair of pants. Move around and do action stuff now. Excellent. Brainiac's going to be very jealous. He only wanted a, a pair of pants. A decent pair of pants. Take us away, Gepwin. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you all for our guest stars in this final episode of the season for season two. For joining us on the galaxy's favorite game show. Ooh, yay!
I'm sorry everyone, I'm like still sick and I'm tired and this was a very bad episode to end the season on. Yep. Very, very bad. Yeah, I, I, you know, I've been having some weirdness with my shoulder lately, but I haven't been generally that as bad as uh, Office Gep when he is, and I'm still also exhausted and tired and in, in massive amounts of suffering here. Well, I don't Ooh. know how the schedule's going to work. We already had to miss one week for this, and I apologize for the illness. I hope you enjoyed the filler episode. Uh, I hope in the next couple of weeks we are going to have our Between Seasons special movie episode. Yes. What does that what does that mean, Gepwin? So that means that we have a guest star who came in and picked their favorite movie. And our guest star, barring any unforeseen sudden changes, Jesse Gender, who you can check out on YouTube. A pile of YouTube adventures. Yeah, does really good sci-fi commentary, has a few very good video essays. I would recommend looking up the video on women's representation through Star Trek. It's a yes. very, very well done, well researched video. And the movie that was chosen for next time is going to be Cloud Atlas. It's going to be also involving different time periods and things like that. Yes, different timelines, different Tom Hanks's. Among other people, yes. That was the main way they marketed that movie back in the day. Look how many Tom Hanks's. Tom Hanks's throughout time. I just finished watching it. It's going to be a, a pain in the butt to write. Anyway, you can go check that out. It's actually one of the ones that's on Netflix if you have that. So go watch that before next time. Because it'll make a lot more sense if you watch it before I have to summarize it. Yes. <laughs> and to summarize it within like less than an hour. <laughs> So, I apologize for this being a little bit of a low-energy season finale. Hopefully, next episode will be better, and we're going to take a few weeks off after that to get you know everything set up for season three. Yeah, don't worry. I'll, I'll have something to you know, toss in there to help uh, bridge the gap as well, one way or another. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time for Cloud Atlas on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Jesse Gender and the story of the damp skybound cartography. You know, I'm Cloud Atlas. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs>